Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for having us back in your ears. Thank you for joining us, everybody. So we are on our mid-season break at the moment, so you haven't got an episode, but we thought we'd be nice and we thought we'd just release a little little something something for you. So we are here with a special guest. Tell us who you are, what show you're from, and a bit about you. Oh, my, uh, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm the host of the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. A uh, little bit about myself. Uh, I'm fat and bald. <laughs> <laughs> that says it all, really. <laughs> That's all we needed to know, to be yeah, fair. that's everything. <laughs> tell, tell us about your show, because your show is, is epic. And you do loads of other stuff as well on top of that. So um, give us the inside track. Uh, Murder Mile is, uh, do you know what, I, years ago I had an idea and I, I, I was walking down the street and I thought, I wonder how many murders are on a single street. And that was my, just my original idea. Um, and that's where it came from. So Murder Mile is focused on a very small area of London, West London, but mostly the West End. And mostly kind of around Soho area. People may not know it, but the, the thing I love is that streets keep coming back people keep coming back places it's like sometimes you find murders next door to each other sometimes you find murders in the same building in the same room the same people so i i know when i started i started it as a walking tour and um before i started i thought god i hope there's enough murders to cover a tour like a a two-hour tour now i'm 200 episodes in still going to be going for a couple of years and there's i'm finding the same buildings people coming back again and again there's a lot of i love that so where would you suggest (laughs) if somebody wants to come and start listening to your show would you suggest they just start from the beginning or is there somewhere that you'd recommend a new listener starts with you take potluck um what i try to do with murder mile is find cases that people have never heard of before because that's what i love is i kind of start with no knowledge I think that's the best, but for me, that's the best way to start is to go, okay, I found a murder on this street on this date, and that's all I know. And I grab the police file or the the original court records, and I sit down, and I open up the file, and I go, right, what's it about? And it, it's, it's like if someone's given you a novel, but they've cut the spine, and they've removed all the page numbers, and then they've dropped all the pages on the floor. And they go, right, here's a novel, enjoy enjoy yourself. And you pick up a page and it goes, ah, oh, Susan walked into a pub on Tuesday and she found a red handbag. And you go, okay, who's Susan? What's the pub? <laughs> What's the handbag got to do with it? For me, it's about problem solving. I, I, I just, so that's where I start is I know nothing. I need to explore. I love solving problems. I'm just a problem solver by, uh, that's what I love doing. So uh, that's the way I treat the podcast. So any episode. Literally any episode, you will find cases that you won't find anywhere else because I've never seen them myself. And that is something I really enjoy is hearing cases. And it's it's often as well just normal people, just, you know, like, for example, the the baker's wife. And, you know, oh, she's just God, a normal yeah. person. Just, um, God, that episode was horrific, by the way. So thanks for that. <laughs> but, you're, but, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks for giving me nightmares. But... It is. It's it's often normal people in in ordinary lives, which I think is really really good as well. It's not it's not all fancy flashy, and it's not because you're in London. It's not just all gangsters and stuff like that. Mm. I think I think that's where I start with it. Is 
I think there's too much kind of myth making around kind of murderers and serial killers. You know, people like the fantasy and I totally get that. It's it's about removing yourself from reality. But what I find more interesting is knowing the fact that the person sitting next to you could be a murderer or someone in your family or someone might kill you over something as simple as a five pound note or a look or a word. Do you know, it It can happen to anyone. And that's what I try and get across with the podcast is that these, you're right, these are real people. Oh, with the Baker's Wife episode, um, um, originally I didn't know whether to do that because for, for listeners, it's not a traditional murder. It's a baker. He's uh, late 1800s. He's working in his bakery. His wife helps him. He's an angry man, naturally. Things aren't going well. Um, every time he feels that she's a bit slow, he punches her. Uh, she falls down on the floor. Every time she falls down the floor, he punches her again and says, get up. And he keeps doing that for days and days and days. And so it's not a premeditated murder, but it's kind of the tragedy of it that this is so real. This is going on all the time, everywhere. And he's not intending on killing her. It's just his anger leads to her getting a brain hemorrhage and dying. And it's, it's just so tragic. But it's so, as you say, it's so real, isn't it? It's a, it's a real case about real people. I, I was just going to say, I think it's um, it's so relatable, isn't it? Because uh, we, we consume true crime as much as we create the the episodes that we do. Um, so we, I know, we all find it absolutely fascinating, and we're really trying to understand what motivates people to kill a lot of the time. And I think, yeah, with with the episodes that the cases that you're covering, it, it's something that you can put your yourself into, and not necessarily empathize with with the person that's committed the crime but you can understand how this has led to this point how it's happened and whilst we're we're totally different people and we wouldn't necessarily get into these situations you can have a, a deeper level of understanding than if you were talking about something i don't know something more on a, a normal sort of trajectory of a, a typical sort of murder yeah. when you when you're looking at these these more bizarre cases it's um it, i think it's personally for me it's much more easy to relate to them it's, it's amazing how a lot of these cases are so true so realistic so they could happen everywhere and they do happen everywhere and what i try really hard to do is to i try and research as much as possible to get in deep into the people's minds because I try and think if I can think like they can think, then I can understand where they're coming from and what they're doing and what their motives are. And it's, it's fascinating, but sometimes it's really di- like the baker's wife is a prime example. It's like, I can normally record an episode in about an hour, hour and a half, which is not too bad for a dyslexic with a stutter. Um, but the baker's wife, oh dear, I, I blubbed all the way through it. I, I can't show you the outtakes. Because it literally is, I cried through almost all of the episode, and all the outtakes are basically me going, "Michael, just man the fuck up." <laughs> You've got that makes me feel better about sobbing through listening to it. Then that makes me feel a little bit more. Oh, good. Like I'm not totally upset. Like it, it was so upsetting and heartbreaking. But then equally, how wonderful that she is still remembered and talked about. Yeah, I th- for me that. Do you know what I? Ever since I was a kid, I always had a kind of a weird idea in my head that one of the worst things that I, I would ever want to happen to me would be to not be remembered. And I, I think that's a weird thing to say. I don't know why, but it's kind of to be forgotten, I think, is the most tragic thing in the world. So every time I'm writing an episode, I always write it from the victim's perspective. And 
for me, I'm always thinking about what would they like? I try and tell the most honest story I can, but also it's about this is their story. This is what they're about. How would they want this to be remembered? Their final moments. And they're, they're real people. And I think, I think too often people forget that true crime is about real people. Yeah, I think we, we perhaps started, um, I don't know wh- whether you'd agree, Mark, but I think we perhaps started with looking at the perpetrator a little bit too much. And then within a few episodes, we just suddenly realised exactly that, that shift of, no, we shouldn't be thinking about the perpetrator as the named person. We shouldn't be remembering that name. We should be remembering the victims and how their families want us to talk about them and how the families talk about them. And I definitely now see such a shift in when I go to write compared with when we first decided to do the show. I think we kind of wanted a bit of sensationalism, didn't we, Mark? And now it's... We did, yeah. A little bit more focused on the victims and actually making, you know, how have, how has some good come out of something that is a tragedy? Oh, no, I was just going to say, you can see that in bookshops, can't you? When people go looking for books and you'll see loads of books on all the different killers, like all the top killers, but you rarely see books about victims. So obviously it's not always just those individual cases where it's a a single episode or, you know, a murder or something that happens that's a shorter case. Sometimes obviously you have your series. My favourite series that I'm sure I've told you a million times is The Blackout Ripper. So what made you choose to cover that? And what makes you choose to cover something that's going to be such a long series? Such a ball ache. (laughs) Uh, Blackout Ripper, I, do you know what? When I started doing the walking tours of Soho, this was uh, back in 2015, uh, I didn't know about the Blackout Ripper. I stumbled across it by accident. I think it was in a news article. There's not a lot written about it. Uh, so originally I wasn't going to cover it, but then I found in the National Archives was the original court records and the police file. So I pulled it out and thought, let's have a look at it. Um, and it just blew me away. It was fascinating. It's one of these cases it's a a spree killer from the 1940s across four days murders four women attempts to kill two others and no one's no one's covered it before and I was like this is mine I almost felt like you'd made it up a little bit because I was like how have I never heard of this before I know there's a lot of other things going on but surely I'd have heard of Uh, this and then no it's amazing it's an odd one, isn't it? Because I thought the same. I thought there's there's no spree killers in Soho in, in my little remit. But when I uncovered it, I, I did the same. I was like, why has no one talked about this? And it's because it's World War Two. There was a lot going on. They wanted to keep it suppressed because the the mood was already, the tides were turning during World War Two. kind of, um, Dunkirk had happened. Uh, Germany, were, uh, the Nazis were basically on the border. They were ready to invade Britain. Everything was going badly, so they need to keep it suppressed. Also, the people didn't care anymore. So um, when I opened up the file, I was just blown away. Um, originally, it was going to be a four-parter, just focusing on the victims, because I actually thought to myself, Blackout Ripper, not interested in him. I think he's a tosser. I know you'll agree. He's so arrogant. He's such a shit. Just an ego trip. Yeah. Yeah, It's like I I opened up the file and I thought, ah, fuck him. I'm not interested at all. But the victims, I absolutely adored. So I I dived into their lives. But then it started expanding and my brain started going, but what about this? What about that? It turned into an eight part series, which eventually became a 10 part series. And I'm still researching him today, like four or five years on. I'm, I'm looking into his back history. I want to know where he comes from. He's, he, you don't just wake up one morning in February 
the 9th, 1945, and go, I'm going to kill four women and attempt to kill two others. You just don't do that. <laughs> mm. Well, at least I wouldn't. No, and it is, it's is—it's known like what gets someone to that point, I think is what's really, really fascinating. I think that's probably what draws a lot of people into true crime is trying to understand why. And it's and it's not like he's a a guy who walks the streets and just stabs someone randomly and then runs away like a coward. This is, if if listeners don't know about him, he's he's very methodical. He will lure ladies in, like he's he's not a Jack the Ripper running through the streets with a, like a, a cape on going, and in disguise. He's in his uniform, he goes up to people, he says, hi, I'm Gordon. He picks up sex workers. He walks them back to their flat or or, or sometimes other places to have sex with them. Some sex workers he will brutally murder, others he will have a lovely conversation with. And they will come away saying he's a gentleman, he's really sweet. But the ones he hates, I don't know whether it's hatred. This is what I'm still working on. He's The things he does to the victim, he poses them, he mutilates them, he takes his time and he poses the body so that when someone walks in through the door, there is utter shock. It's like it will be the most horrific thing you will ever see in your life. And that's what he's aiming for. And he's doing, he's meeting like five or six women a night. And it, there seems to be no rhyme, or reason why he's mutilating these women in a specific way. He doesn't know them. He's fascinating. And I, I, I can't get him out of my head. I, I need to know why, because he, he never gave a confession. He admitted he was, he said he was innocent. His family say he was innocent. Uh, he was executed a couple of months later and went to his grave, holding on to all the information about why he did what he did and i i need to know i need to know <laughs> so you've kind of alluded to the fact that you're still researching him but one of my questions for you was going to be how long does it take you to research and record a standalone episode compared with a multi-parter so um is there really an answer to that then i guess they're all different what i try to do is uh, as mentioned I, I i try not to know too much at the start because the problem is that a lot of newspapers, you're not getting the fact. What you're getting is a journalist's interpretation of the evidence put before them. Um, and I don't. I, I also don't use other people's books because it's the same. It's it's a, it's a perspective. It's not it's not the actual accurate facts. So what I like to do is know as little as possible. I go into the archives. I pull out the police file. Um, sometimes, if you're lucky, it can be. Nice and fat, like a good couple of inches, so about 100 pages, which is about right, 100, 200 pages. And it's got all the witness statements and the autopsy uh, record, toxicology, you know, everything's in there and it's really useful. Sometimes uh, they can be like a foot deep. It's like I opened up one file that was uh, 1,500 pages long and I just went, I have no idea because it's not in an order. I think people think that the archive file, you open it up and on page one it goes, Dear Podcaster, Thank you for choosing this file. Here is a list of all the people you need to know. And this is a chronology and it does not happen. It is literally page one is like, um, police constable, blah, 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 uh, interviewed this person on Tuesday and you go, right. I don't know who those people are, but you have to dig deep and you have to dive into it. And I love that because you, you find things that you're never going to find. So, um, uh, also some of the inquest files, I picked up one recently um, a couple of years ago and it was three pages long just three pages that's all they needed so yeah. it was the episode where uh, whether you remember this one it was a, a lady who was traumatized by the bombings during world war Two. 
to such a point that she wanted to um, gas her two twin sons in front of the oven. Oh my goodness. No, I've not heard that episode, but I feel like maybe I would have skipped it because it's children and I do struggle to listen. Yeah. Oh my God, that's horrendous. Horrific. And it was, it was case closed. It was like, she definitely did it. Mm -hmm. That was that. And I opened it up and it was only two pages, three, two or three pages long. And I thought, is there enough here? But there was enough emotion inside me that I kind of felt for her and I understand where she come f- came from that I knew I could research around it into kind of what was going on in World War II, what was her trauma. And uh, it, it made for a really good episode, I think. A, re- a really heart-rending one. Yeah, if you've got kids, n- not an episode to go for. Um, so I, I know, yeah, so I know uh, I know you've talked a lot, Mike, about really immersing yourselves in yourself in the research and um, it's a huge amount of time and energy and emotions that you devote to to the cause. And I, I want to know, I know some cases will stay with you in particular, others perhaps you're more able to move on from, but how how do you move on? How do you get over the, the trauma that you're visiting in, in these cases? How do you make sure that doesn't affect you? My dad is a counsellor and a psychiatrist, or he used to be a psychologist. Uh, and I used to work the, the helpline for him, the counselling helpline. So I'm kind of, I'm used to dealing with people with trauma anyway. But um, when I was doing, I was doing a case on the Thames Topath murderers, uh, murders. And these were two really lovely ladies who were kind of cycling along the, the Thames Topath. Um, there was a, a lad in the bushes, he'd got an axe. And when he would go, pa- when they cycled past, he would whack them over the back of the head with the axe. Um, so they fell on the towpath in the darkness. He raped both of them, uh, and then he dumped their bodies in the Thames. Uh, and when I pulled out the the archive file, you know, going—I mean, it was horrific going through just the details, but also in there was the crime scene photos as well. And one lady had been pulled out of the water after a day. Another one wasn't found for a couple of days. And the images were absolutely horrific. But what I tried to do is I, when I opened up the, the pictures and looked at the, the, these ladies who were absolutely horrible, the injuries to them, to me, I didn't instantly go, oh my God, that's horrific. What I did was I looked at them and went, oh, she's only got one sock on. That was the first thing that popped into my head was I knew what she was wearing. And for me, that was data. When I'm in the archives and I need data, I'm writing it down. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Where's her shoes? That's all I could think about was like, so that's, oh, there's her brooch. Okay, that understands it because she got that off her father. But it's only when I'm writing the episode that I start diving into their lives and that's when I start getting upset. I, I know I'm on a, a good slant when I'm writing and I'm blubbing at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It, it stays with you, doesn't it? When you, when you see or hear something traumatic, especially if it's something real and a, someone you, you think is nice and deserves a better shot at life and you just think it's, it's the tragedy, isn't it? That, that makes it horrific. So yeah, images, images haven't got a problem with distressing images, but it's just the sadness of, of people's lives. I've got, I've, I've got one coming up at the moment, which is a, um, which is going to be a multi-parter. I, I can't discuss it too much. It's a case I've been working on for ages. Um, it's very little in the press. Uh, elderly lady uh, strangled and tortured in a hotel room. Um, still unsolved today. And there's very little in the press because it, it is unsolved. And it's a horrifying story because she's, you know, she's, uh, she survived concentration camps and, you know, she was struggling with dementia at that point. And, you know, the hotel was a place that she'd escaped to when she needed to escape from the nursing home. Um, but by diving in deep, 
I actually, I've, I've unearthed something that is just so, so baffling. Like, I thought I was going to uncover a case about maybe a little serial killer or something like that. I've unearthed a story about a, a hotel where everyone has a con, everyone is up to mischief, everyone is breaking into the customers' rooms and stealing stuff. Um, oh my goodness! I can't wait to listen to this. That sounds it's her, there's there's mad. like a, a drug ring that's going on through the hotel room. Some of the most of the staff are drunk. A lot of them are on LSD. There's there's a a sex ring going on, like prostitutes being brought in, and that is like what's the rough time scale? Like what what timings is this roughly? Obviously, not to give too much away, but sixties uh, seventies. Oh my goodness! Okay, so it's quite recent. I was wondering if you were going to say eighteen hundreds or something. No, no. And, and, and this is, I mean, I, I always try not to cover cases which are too similar to other cases, but I'm on a run this season. I seem to have a lot of, <laughs> I apologise to anyone who's listening to this and they're in a hotel room at the moment, or they're listening to this in bed, because I've had a run of cases where lots of people being murdered in their own beds, and especially in hotel rooms. And it's, and it's the places you think that you're safe. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? We, we all go to bed and we all think, I'm here, I'm in my bed. Like, like when you're upset, you do that, don't you? You go to your bedroom or you go to your bed because it's the place you feel safest, but you're not because you're asleep and someone can just break oh, in and just murder no, you then. I'm totally not going to sleep now tonight. <laughs> I can honestly say since, um, since we started doing our show, I, um, I, I'm much more security conscious when I'm at home uh, and I never used to be. So I used to be a nightmare. I'd, sometimes I wouldn't even lock the back door overnight when I'd go to bed. And yeah, hearing the things that we hear about, you, you really do start to think, actually, I need to be a bit careful here. My God, I, I've just finished uh, doing an episode, which I almost wasn't going to do, but I stumbled across some interesting details. And it's a man standing on the platform at King's Cross. Um, a homeless guy is begging for change and he goes, um, don't do that. Don't, don't beg. Um, and the homeless guy, for no particular reason, pushes him in front of a train. Oh, my God. And they, they'd only... They'd only been within each other's vicinity for about two minutes and they'd only exchanged ten words. And that's all it took. And you just go, fuck. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I think that that's similar to some of the motiveless murders that, mm. that we've covered on our show. And that I, I always say it, but those are the ones that really stay with me because we all take precautions to try and mitigate any any risks uh, in, in day-to-day life so that we, we don't become a victim. And I'm not blaming victims at all here, but, I, you know, you, you, you can take steps to try and protect yourself. But with a motiveless murder, which that's very similar, there might have been a tiny motive there. Um, they've had this exchange and he's kind of seen red and pushed this guy in front of a train but with a true motiveless murder any of us could be the victim of, of a motiveless murder however we live our lives and that that always bothers me immensely terrifying isn't it terrifying uh, thinking about who we're passing every single day like how many how many murderers have we passed well, there, there is that statistic, isn't there? That I think is it something like in your in your lifetime, you'll you'll walk past fourteen murderers or something like that. Uh, obviously, without knowing it. Wonder how many how many of our listeners are murderers. Well, I do wonder that sometimes with some some of the unsolved though, with some of the unsolved crimes, I think is the true perpetrator out there listening to this, perhaps. 
as a as a way of kind of finding out what people think about it we've also had lots of really interesting conversations with people where they've said oh i was in prison with so and so from x episode or so and so from this case that you covered and we never then find out what they were in prison for <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes they do tell us but sometimes it's just like oh well, yeah i shared a cell with so and so and she still writes to me and it's like oh okay that's interesting but um you okay <laughs> We're so bl- we're so blasé with it though that we just kind of I think we we're immersed in that world enough to think well it doesn't really matter what you were in prison for you well yeah because it could be something really small now and yeah you yeah. served your time and but it's I think very we're different. almost we're almost a little bit desensitized to to crime and if somebody tells me they've been in prison my first thought isn't what were you in for which I think would be most people's thoughts um, I'd probably more want to know what's it like inside because I've always got this. Uh, Concern that I'll end up in prison one day for something for fucking something up. Are, are, are uh, you going to admit to something right now? <laughs> I might do. Yeah, no, I leave it for I leave it for another episode, another time. It is that terrifying idea, though, isn't it, that you could just make one wrong move mm. and do something wrong, or you know, even to the point of just like an accidental mistake while you're driving, like it, something could happen, and or that you could just like be in a bad mood and then like that homeless guy someone says the wrong thing to you and you just lose your shit for no reason like who knows it's terrifying idea isn't it that's i suppose the nature of of these sorts of podcasts is is that side of human behavior what does draw people drive people to behave like that i I think fundamentally that's what fascinates all of us and that's why why we listen to true crime podcasts and immerse ourselves in that world I th- I, the thing I always love is diving into like a, kind of the victims' lives and asking those questions. And with the uh, the homeless guy, I was able to go into right into his back history to work out where he came from. And w- when he went to court, the um, the magistrate was like, "No one really cared about him. He was he was he'd got an extensive criminal record. He was an alcoholic. He was homeless. No one gave a shit. It's like no one looked into his back history. So I dived into his back history, and what you see is a father who's drunk and abusive, his mum died early, his uh, siblings basically abandoned him. At the age of 14, he started working for himself and he was doing all right. He was like a newspaper vendor and he seemed to be on his way up. And then World War II happened. Um, He served overseas, so we don't know whether he suffered trauma, but he seems to have started drinking at that point Uh, and and disappearing from being, uh, uh, deserting from the army. And he keeps disappearing reappearing he keeps trying to sober up and then he keeps falling off the wagon and it just gets worse and worse and worse and by the time he's done this he's been homeless 15 years he's been an alcoholic 25 years and he has he's got no friends he's got no family he's got nothing anymore and i worked out that a couple of days before he'd walked into a hospital and he said i i need help like i i I can't stop drinking and drinking is, is, is the curse of my life. I need to stop. So he went into hospital and they said, we can get you in in two weeks. And he was like, I'll probably be dead in two weeks. It's like, I need help now. So he managed to get them to get him a hospital. Um, so he'd be committed to a psychiatric unit to get like fully detox, like properly detox, which is what he wanted. And they managed to get him in an appointment on the Monday. So the nearest they could get him in. He committed this act on the Saturday, so two days before. Couldn't and it's, couldn't couldn't it, stop drinking. Know, it's not excuses, but it's good valid reasons for potentially how someone can go down that that path. And 
That's awful, isn't it? That's heartbreaking that he's literally begging for help. It does sound like there's an element of self-medicating with alcohol. So it does allude to the fact that there was there would have been huge amount of trauma that he would have witnessed when he was he was overseas in the war. Yeah, a lot of sad lives in the world, isn't there? Absolutely. So, Bethan, I know you wanted to talk about the extra mile. So, oh, I love the extra mile. Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean, are we allowed to tell our listeners about this? I feel like it's my mm. little secret, and I'm the only person who ever knows about it, even though obviously I'm not. But I always feel like it's a really nice little secret. So, what made you start doing it, and why did you do it? It was originally I didn't want to do it. Uh, I'd already done twenty episodes. Uh, without extra mile so for listeners extra mile is basically just like a little chat with me i make a cup of tea and i fill you in on lots of details that haven't made it into the episode um and then episode 21 came along and this is about uh sebastiano magnanini who's a tour guide he used recreational drugs he went round a drug uh dealer's house he had too many drugs like he was on a lot of different drugs and he od'd so the drug dealer and his mate didn't know what to do they saw that he was dead or dying. So they put him in a trolley, uh, like a shopping trolley, and they wheeled him to the canal and they dumped his body in the canal. Um, and that's all you kind of knew, know on the press. And when you read the newspapers articles about it, they, they go, uh, uh, they put him in a trolley and they dumped him in the canal. The problem is because I know the canal network well and I know London well, which is why I focus on murders in a set area so I can walk the streets. I thought, hang on, that's, about a quarter of a mile from the house to the canal is a quarter of a mile. So I got, I went to the location, I got a trolley, I filled it up with 15 stone worth of bricks, which was about Sebastiano's weight. And I wheeled it from the, from the murder, well, murderer's house where we died to the canal. And I worked out that it took me about 14 minutes that pavements are on a camber so it's hard to wheel 15 stone worth of trolley on the on the canal um i was seen by at least five security cameras um and i just thought listeners need to know about this they need to know that uh, there are extra details that go into research in each case so um that's where extra mile came from it's now i tell everyone all the little details that i can't get into the episode all the little secrets and there's a lot <laughs> i think that's what i quite like about it is it does feel like you're telling us a little secret and it's like a little conversational. It helps us to get to know you a little bit more as the host and that sort of thing. Are you ever tempted to just kind of stick with that less formal style? Um, do you know what? I, it's taken me about two, maybe three years to accept Extra Mile because I did it once. I did it with that, with that episode. I, I did it once. Sebastiano, Sebastiano Manini, it ends and then there's like a 30 second gap and then it comes back. And I left it there as a little Easter egg for people. And people were like, Oh, I really like that. So I did it again the next week. Cause the next one was Blackout Ripper, wasn't it? After that, I feel like that was quite soon afterwards. And I think that's potentially where I then heard for the first ah. time. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. Uh, I think it was about 10 in between that. But yeah, not not too far behind. And yeah, people just seemed to enjoy it. And they were like, um, can you do more? And I was like, yeah, because for me, it's easy. It's like unedited. I'll make it clear at the start, it's unedited. Uh, and I just have fun. I think someone, because I struggle to accept it, because for me, I prefer kind of the storytelling. Someone said to me once, and it was really good of them. They, they said, the thing that they like about extra mile is that 
the main part of Murder Mile is like it's like a uh, it's like the first two courses in a three course meal. They say you've had your starter and you've had, you had your main course, and what you want at the end is a nice palate cleanser. And they said that's what Extra Mile is. That's so poetic. I know I that love that it. kind of cheered me up. I was like. Oh, you're right. Yeah, actually. So it's nice to have the counterbalance of like really strict and serious and kind of focused with all the sound effects and all that. And then all of a sudden it's like, blah, 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 blah. Although some people seem to think that I'm drunk when I record that. I'm not. <laughs> no, I've never had a drink. Oh, except during New Blue, which was the three part series I did when I interviewed my mate who was a new copper. We had a couple of beers then. That was nice. <laughs> Mark used to need to have a drink before we recorded I for did, a good what I? five or six episodes because he was so nervous. At least more than oh, that. It takes probably. a while to get in, doesn't it? It's the, those first couple of episodes are a real, yeah, terrifying. Because it reminded when I was telling Mark about Extra Mile, it, he straight away made the link that I'd kind of made is very similar to our Crime Wave that we've started doing, where it's not scripted really. We have an idea of what we want to talk about, but we can be more casual it's less Mm. edited and we can be a little bit more relaxed and and conversational and so we quite enjoy that but I still prefer personally writing a script and recording an episode I enjoy doing crime wave um and it's a really weird one isn't it I don't know how about you Mark what are your what do you prefer I, I think there's probably um, a bigger sense of satisfaction with our main episodes because you're spending hours and hours researching and trying to write in an engaging way. You then record it, it's edited, it, it comes out, you get the feedback. So I think there's um, there's a lot of work invested in it. So it's always, yeah, a real fulfilling feeling when, when it's all done. Whereas Crime Wave is just a bit of a... Um, it, it's how we used to talk when we worked together, isn't it? We would discuss topical true crime events that were in the news and uh, our, our take on it. So it's very, very um, natural for us, but it's, it, yeah, it's not as much work at all. It's is nice it? having that kind of break, isn't it? I, I do a thing for patron listeners or uh, called Walk With Me. Um, and what I do is I get my, uh, my hip mic. So I've got kind of a, a, like a clip mic on my, on my chest and I go for a walk and sometimes I'm taking the bins out or, or sometimes, uh, where I am now, just around the corner, is a place that my listeners know called Dogger's Corner. Um, and when I go for a little walk, I, I kind of <laughs> fill them in on the research I'm doing at the moment and, and kind of extra, extra. So the stuff that you hear in Extra Mile isn't everything. So after I've finished editing, I I let them into all the secrets of all the little things that they will hear that no one else know about, which they love. But also I, I go past Dogger's Corner and I go, oh, there's like five cars here today. And you, and you and you can see all the guys in there on their little mobile phones and they they seem to be texting someone and you, occasionally you see lights flashing. Oh, yeah, my gosh. So, uh, and then we wonder why you're moored up, why you're moored up. Li- <laughs> tells us everything we need to know. I just moored up here this morning and my first instinct was to go, oh, Dogger's Corner, fantastic. <laughs> I do I do love that about London, though. I think you don't get that in many places, even many big cities like London, where so much happens in such a small space. And I love that you have that sort of mile square where so much can and has and does happen. It's a real melting pot, isn't it? I think I, I picked Soho as kind of my main nucleus randomly, just because I worked in Soho for years. So I, I knew the streets. Um, but I didn't really know about of any murders that were kind of in that area. I I I just took potluck. 
But it is, I think, because it's transient. It's not really a place where people set down a home for life. It's a place where you get like a, a lot of sex workers, you get a lot of drug addicts, you get a lot of drunks, uh, a lot of crime. But th- things change over time. So, I, yeah, I love it. It's uh, it's um, every change of, of decade, each street becomes something different. It can go from like high-end kind of uh, places where only kind of royalty hangs out to being like the worst slum imaginable. So yeah, love it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Mike, for talking to us, taking the time to chat with us and for talking to our listeners. And hopefully um, some of them are going to come and find you. I imagine a lot of them have already listened to you because a lot of people always talk about you anyway. But yeah, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back next week, guys, with a normal episode. And so we'll see you then. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.